Genesis chapter 7 is where we continue our study as we look at the life of Noah and the flood narrative, an incredibly familiar passage of Scripture. I've read through it many, many times. I've never dug into its depths and examined the complexities that are there and looked through all the different nuances that are part of that. And as you see in the outline, this is the 27th message that we've uh, undertaken together, getting through the 7th chapter. So, so much review. You reasonably can't get through it all in a meaningful way, especially for those of you that have not been a part of this from the beginning. But as we've looked at chapter 6 and following, this generation of Noah, and looking at his family, the setting is very clear and obvious, repeated all throughout the Genesis narrative, is that the world is desperately sick. From the beginning of Adam's sin in the garden, the world has just spiraled into a quickening pace of sin to the point that in Noah's day, Every thought of man's heart was only evil continually. That was it. It dominated every waking moment. And in this midst, Noah is the only one that God finds to be righteous. He lived a life that is is called blameless. It doesn't mean that he was without sin, but he was different from everyone else. He walked with God. A description reserved for only he and Enoch. And in the midst of this wicked world and the righteousness of Noah, God appears and speaks to him and tells him what he's going to do. The end of all flesh has come before me. You're going to build an ark, and you and your family are going to go upon this ark, and I will bring to you every living creature that breathes air, and you will preserve them. And so Noah got busy being a righteous man and began to build the ark, and we've looked at its dimensions with some detail. We've considered the scope of what it is that Noah and his family built together. It took 120 years to complete the ark. And at the beginning of chapter 7, we see the second announcement or speech that God gives to Noah that it's time to board the ark. Time has come. The hour is at hand. It's all about to change. God is going to make a covenant with Noah and his family that as he brings the end of all life upon the earth, a covenant will be made with Noah and the new world would be brought into being through Noah's three sons. Again, Noah obeys and does everything that God tells him to do. And so as we look at verses 16 through 24, these final verses of chapter 7 detail the flood and provide the act of obedience applied to Noah's life and his family's life from these things that God God has told him to do. So what we see in these final verses in 6 to 24 is what is sometimes called a recapitulation. It is a retelling of the story. It emphasizes the significance, the importance of this story. It also highlights greater detail in one account than we would find in the second or in the first account. And so some will argue that in this retelling of the story, it's an indication that there were two sources that were brought together to to build this flood narrative, but it really isn't that way at all. It isn't two sources. It's simply a retelling that provides 
provides more detail. It emphasizes certain aspects of the flood and underscores the importance of this singular act by God in all of man's existence. God would only do this one time. He promised to never do it again. And so this is the way that, as a part of the Hebrew literary style, Extra emphasis is brought to the flood based upon the retelling, the supplied detail in the second account than what we would see in the first. And as we look at the ongoing outline as this is being built, we come to number five, and that is the actual flood. What was told by God to Noah 120 years earlier and the reasons for it and what Noah was supposed to do, all of this has now come to the point of actually taking place. And so we look now at this lengthy section. We're going to look at this in two separate readings for the sake of time. So we're going to read together, first of all, verses 6 through 12, and then make some points about this. It begins in in verse 6. Now Noah was 600 years old when the flood of water came upon the earth. The Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him entered the ark because of the water of the flood, of clean animals and animals that are not clean, and birds and everything that creeps on the ground. There went into the ark to Noah by twos, male and female, as God had commanded Noah. It came about after the seven days that the water of the flood came upon the earth. In the six hundredth year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the seventeenth day of the month, on the same day, all the fountains of the great deep burst open, and the floodgates of the sky were opened. The rain fell upon the earth for forty days and forty nights. And so our section begins very, very succinctly with a telling of Noah's age. He was six hundred years old. Now we've talked a lot about this building up to this. And there are many people who think that this is hyperbole. It's an impossibility. There's no way anybody could ever live to be that age. There's some kind of mythology that's being perpetrated by the author of Genesis. I believe it's literal. I believe this is exactly what has taken place. And here is Noah who is 600 years old when the flood of water came upon the earth. And so the giving of Noah's age is important because it provides a time stamp for the flood narrative, all of which is going to be completed in one year and 11 days. When Noah turns 601, then the inhabitants of the ark will disembark and they will reestablish life on the freshly cleansed planet. And the entirety of the flood is going to last just a little over one year. So this is the reason that the telling of the age of Noah is established. It also is a part of building the genealogy that began very lengthily way back uh, as the genealogies were built from Adam and passed down in each of the generation accounts that are given. And so we see Noah's age and now boarding begins. Verse 7. Then Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him entered the ark because of the water of the flood. So what Noah was instructed to do 120 years earlier in chapter 6, verses 18 through 20, is restated now that the ark has been completed. It's a restatement of what Noah was instructed to do in the earlier part that we looked at last time in verses 2 and 3. So going back to chapter 6, 18 and 20, Noah was told to bring the animals according to their general classification. It was the cattle or the 
domesticated animals, that which could be raised in a farm environment, the beasts of the field, which was what would become the predators for all of those domesticated livestock. And then there was the crawling things, the little creepy things in the ground, the crickets and the worms and all the different parts of what God created all the way back in chapter 1 and then given further detail in chapter 2. In chapter 7, verses 2 and 3, Noah is told to bring the animals according to their dietary classification, clean or unclean, not cattle, not beasts, not crawling things. And this is what is restated here. What we see in verse 8 and 9 of clean animals and animals that are not clean and birds and everything that creeps on the ground. There went into the ark to Noah by twos, male and female, as God had commanded Noah. So just as God brought the animals to Adam so that he could name them all the way back back in chapter 2, God brings the animal kingdom to Noah so that he can preserve them. Adam names them, and God brings them to Adam so he can do that. Noah is going to preserve them on the ark, and so God brings the animals to Noah so that they will miraculously, by pairs, ascend the ramp into the ark, and they will come aboard. I can only imagine how long this line of animal kingdom might have been. I wonder, how did all the creeping things make it on board without getting smushed by all the big creatures who were coming before or going after? How did all that happen? How did the animals know where to go when they got on board? After all this massive ark that could hold 522 railroad containers over three decks, thousands of rooms or literally nests in the Hebrew, each of these designed for a pair of animals. How did they decide where to go? How was it orchestrated? Where did they settle? How were they grouped on these decks? You know, we don't have any idea. A modern zookeeper would look at this and they would go, whoa, there's no way. How in the world could you ever do that? They would say, I would never want to take that on. I have concluded this is an impossibility. This could not have happened. You know why they think it couldn't happen? Because they can't envision how such a thing could have happened. God just orders the animals and the critters to do what they need to do, and they do it. There's no signage. God's not in there with a whistle and a clipboard saying, you go there and you go there. The family's not running frantically around trying to order it. They just know where to go because God has told them what to do. Just because it's difficult for us to understand something like this massive embarkation on the ark, just because it's difficult for us to understand, doesn't mean that it couldn't have happened. After all, we serve a powerful, infinite God who is capable of doing far more than our finite, sin-cursed minds can even begin to imagine. Thinking about it like this, as we go back through the creation of the world, it's inconceivable to us that everything came out of nothing and everything came out of the spoken word of God. 
physicists and virtually every segment of science goes, I don't know how that could have happened. That could not have happened the way it said it could have happened. And they have spent hundreds of years and billions and billions of dollars trying to be able to say, this is how the world began. They can't ever come to a point of faith and say, God spoke it into being. I don't know that I could ever understand it. I certainly can't explain it, but I just accept it. Just because we can't understand it or explain it doesn't mean that an infinitely powerful God couldn't make it so. Remember, there are seven pairs of clean animals that are now boarding the ark. These will be necessary for the institution of the sacrificial system that's going to take place in the newly established world. When Noah and his family get into the newly established, newly cleansed world, sacrifice is going to be in order. And so there will need to be seven pairs of the clean animals so there can be sacrifice. And now the procreation of those species for further sacrifice down the road and also food as it would now apply to the dietary laws that the people who come from Noah's family would now observe. Now, Genesis doesn't give us any detail of the sacrificial system at all. We know that Cain and Abel brought an offering to the Lord. One was rejected, the other was accepted, but there's no detail or description of what that offering required. We also know that sacrifice has taken place. We don't know the details of what exactly happen, but it is very likely that what, that what would later be revealed through the Mosaic law is going to be instituted when Noah begins life in the new world. We don't know, we can only speculate, but I don't know how they could have understood the category of clean and unclean as Moses is describing it here. He's doing that for the benefit of his current audience. But those distinctions would have been the same. Otherwise, there would be a lot of confusion about that. So no detail is given, but very clearly sacrifice is in order when they find the new world ready for them. And the reminder for us is this. Sin requires a sacrifice. Always. Always, when Adam and Eve sinned, there was a sacrifice. God killed an animal and made covering from the animal hide to cover the nakedness of Adam and Eve. From the very, very beginning, sin required a sacrifice. The same is going to be true. Because God is going to decorrupt the world through the flood... But Noah and his family are going to bring the curse of sin with them into the new world. Into the new world, the curse of sin requires a sacrifice to be paid, and God equips the new world with animals for sacrifice and for food for the new world that would be established through the sons of Noah. So the boarding has begun, and now we follow the narrative. The rain begins. Verse ten. It came about after the seven days that the water of the flood came upon the earth. Now verse 10 makes it seem like Noah and the animals were on board for seven days before the rain came. This is what I indicated last week and I actually misspoke about that. This seven day period that is being referenced here is the gap between when God told Noah to get aboard in verse 1 of chapter 7, and the actual boarding when the rain came seven days later. 
So the reason for that gap is not known. It can only be speculated. Perhaps it's preparation for Noah and the family to make everything ready prior to the actual coming of the rain. It's also possible that this seven-day period is a time of mourning for all the life that is going to be lost. Think about it like this. In Noah's day, it wasn't unusual for people to live six, seven, eight hundred years. And Noah would have had many, many brothers and sisters, many, many aunts and uncles, many, many cousins. And this family of eight is now mourning the loss of every relative they have ever known. They've also been told about the reality that everything that breathes air is going to die. So there's a possibility that the seven-day preparation period, this gap, if you will, allows them to mourn the loss of life, perhaps even allowing this rest in God's world before the flood water is going to come. Verse 11 continues, In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on the same day all the fountains of the great deep burst open, and the floodgates of the sky were opened. Again, there's a time stamp here that is necessary to track the actual length of the time on the ark when all the water would finally subside and they would exit the ark and begin life again in this newly cleansed world. But it also highlights the importance of the date. There's a phrase in here, on that day, and there are many, many examples in Scripture where it says, on that day, and it makes the usage of that phrase highlighting something that is very, very important. As an example, this phrase is used to mark Abraham's circumcision, identifying his covenant with God. It would say in Genesis 7, 26, 17, 26, in the very same day Abraham was circumcised and Ishmael his son. The covenant that God made with Abraham was an, was an incredibly important day for the eventual nation of Israel and that's what that phrase highlights. This phrase is also used when Israel enters the region of Sinai after their exodus from Egypt, the crossing of the Red Sea, and now they are at the mountain of Sinai where God is going to descend and he is going to meet with them and he is going to meet with Moses and begin communicating to them the laws, the rules, the commandments that he was going to have them live by. So it says, for example, in Exodus 19.1, in the third month after the sons of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that very day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. So that phrase... It's very, very important. It's used to mark the Passover exodus and the death of Moses. Its usage here in the flood narrative underscores the significance of the day of the boarding of the ark, of the animals filing in by pairs, and the rains beginning to come. So God begins to uncorrupt the world that man had corrupted, and the events of God's covenant promise to Noah also begin and preserving his life since God found him to be righteous. Now, our verse tells us the fountains of the great deep burst open and the floodgates of the skies were opened. 
Again, the phrase that is chosen here is very, very important. The phrase burst forth is used to describe the parting of the Red Sea when Israel crossed it. Now, we don't have... Most of us don't have a first-hand account of the size of the parting of the, of the Red Sea itself and the amount of water that would be displaced in order for a million or so Israelites to go through the Red Sea. But when the Red Sea was parted, it burst forth, declaring the omn, the omn, I always do that, the omnipotence of God and causing this event to take place. And so when the when the sea burst forth, it split in two so that the Israelites could cross on dry land into the region that God was going to give them. It's also used to describe the earthquake that opened up and split apart the ground to crush Korah's rebellion that is identified and articulated in number 16. The ground burst forth and swallowed up the rebellion. In the same way, this began without warning, this swallowing up of Korah's army, the bursting forth of the floodgates, in the same way this began without warning and without notice, so will be the coming of the Lord. This is the foreshadowing that I mentioned earlier in my prayer. It's also a foreshadowing we talked about a little bit last week, in the absolute desolate, des, in the absolute wiping out of all of life, the immense tragedy that is going to take place, where everything that breathes air dies, that happens without warning. Now, it's assumed that that Noah preached during the building of the ark. We don't have any record of that. There's some allusions in the New Testament that may, may or may not affirm that. But when the rain came, it came without warning. The end of life on earth came without any warning. In the same way... So will be the coming of the Lord. Jesus said in Matthew twenty four forty two. Therefore, be on the alert, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. Let me ask you this. If you do the day and the time, would you be ready? Would you be busy making preparation? Oh yeah, you would. But we don't know when he's actually going to come. Paul picks up on the same thing in 1 Thessalonians 5, 2, and 3. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. While they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them. Suddenly, like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. In the same way, all of humanity is going to perish in the flood without any warning, without any notice. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. My friend, if you are not ready, you better get ready. Because He's going to come. And when He comes, it's too late. It's over with. And you will be separated. The sheep from the goat. The the wheat from the chaff. And if you're not ready, you're going to be on the wrong side of God's judgment. There's a lesson to be learned as it relates to God bringing an end to human history in the flood to decorrupt a sin-sick and a sin-cursed world, there's a foreshadowing of what God is going to do when the end of history as we know it comes and God pulls the plug 
and says, time's up. When that happens, all of mankind will stand before God and give an account of their life, and that will be without warning. Without warning, the skies opened and the torrential rains began. As I mentioned last week, those that wanted to find out how much water it would take to actually cover the highest mountain to the 20-some feet as mentioned in the Genesis narrative, it's been calculated that the contents of an Olympic-sized swimming pool, 550,000 gallons of water, would need to fall on every square meter of earth every minute in order to flood the world to that depth in a period of 40 days. The amount of rain is staggering. It's nothing like the world has ever seen and would never see again. The rain didn't begin with a drizzle and then a sprinkle. It didn't start with the rumbling of a few thunderclaps in the distance or the flash of a lightning to say, hey, something's going on, because after all, the world had never seen rain. But on that day, the heavens opened up and the floodgates burst forth. And it was a torrential rain all at once, a deluge. And an incalculable, even though somebody's tried to calculate it, an incalculable amount of rain began to fall. I said this last week. It wasn't raining cats and dogs. It was raining Olympic-sized swimming pools. That's the kind of rain that was falling. If you've ever been to Niagara Falls or some other large waterfall, the sheer scope of water that is falling is staggering. And the noise level, for example, at Niagara Falls, at Niagara Falls is a constant decibel level of 95. All day, all night, 95 decibels, the sound of water cascading and crashing into the bottom of the water. Imagine being in a rainstorm that sounded like you were at the bottom of a large waterfall and the rain fell hour after hour for 40 days and 40 nights. This is an example except there's no volume. We need to hear the volume. Uh, John, would you, would you go back and... You're not going to be able to do that, so... My apologies. I muted this because when I turned it on, I didn't want all the computer stuff to do what it was going to do. But to get an appreciation for the sound of what this massive waterfall would be like, this rainfall, this is an example... Hour after hour for 40 days and 40 nights, the heavens burst forth and the floodgates were opened. That should have startled you. That should have caused you to say, what the heck? And that's exactly what took place when the floodwaters began. And all of humanity that had never seen rain and probably laughed at Noah and thought he was off his rocker to build something that large were instantly made aware this is bad. 
And there was not a thing they could do. Verse 12, the rain fell upon the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. 960 hours of torrential rain to the point that the highest mountain was covered by approximately 25 feet of water. As shocking as that amount of rain would be in our lifetime today, it's not going to compare to the trumpet sound, the appearance of Jesus, the end of history, and we stand before God. And He says to you, why should I let you into heaven? What are we going to say? Well, my friend, if you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, if you've not made Him your Lord and Savior, it's going to be really bad. And you can't just say the right thing because God knows your heart. You can't fool God. You can't finagle your way into heaven. Well, very quickly, we're going to go through the remainder of this passage. We're going to look at this in individual pieces. That is the retelling. I'm sorry. It's the retelling of this flood narrative. These are not contradictory accounts. They are supplementary accounts. The significance of the event is underscored by its retelling. And it's done so with dramatic effect. It also underscores the faith of Noah and his family to do everything that God had commanded them to do without wavering, without debating, without discussing. They just did it. So the first thing that we see in the retelling is the names of the sons are provided where they weren't earlier. Verse 13, on the very same day, Noah and Shem and Ham and Japheth, the sons of Noah and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with them, they entered the ark. Not just Noah and his family, but it now identifies the three sons from whom all of humanity is going to come. The animals are identified by their general classification, not their dietary um, categories. And it highlights here that each after its own kind. Verse 14, they and every beast after its kind and all the cattle after their kind and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth after its kind and every bird after its kind, all sorts of birds. And so this massive amount of the animal kingdom, an unspeakably long line, makes their way onto the ark. And so the general classification of the air-breathing creatures are listed here, just as they were identified in creation all the way back in Genesis 2. And again, they boarded just as God commanded them, verse 15 and 16. So they went into the ark to Noah by twos of all flesh, in which was the breath of life. Those that entered, male and female of all flesh, entered as God had commanded him, and the Lord closed it behind him. So Noah and his family, the animal kingdom is on board, and the final detail that's provided here is that God closes the door. They are in, they are secure, they are ready, and the rain comes. The floodgates are released, the heavens burst forth, And verse 17 says, And then the flood came upon the earth for 40 days 
And the water increased and lifted up the ark so that it rose above the earth. And so this massive ark is now afloat. The torrential rains pounding down certainly caused the boat to toss and turn and to shift back and forth. But because of its size, because of the way God instructed Noah to build it, it's safe. It's able to endure, remembering that what God gave to Noah and the instruction of building the ark is the perfect modern engineering ratio of modern large ships, six to one. For every foot and for every six feet in length, you had to have a foot of width, and that fits perfectly with what modern boat builders use today. Verse 18, the water prevailed and increased greatly upon the earth and the ark floated on the surface of the water. So with each passing hour, the ark would rise higher, eventually surpassing the height of the trees and then the hills that they could see off into a distance and eventually the mountains. Everything would disappear and it would be nothing but an endless horizon of water as far as one could be able to see, but they couldn't see. The window was in the very, very top of the ark around its entire circumference. The light came in, the odors went out. Verse 19 and 20, The water prevailed more and more upon the earth so that all the high mountains everywhere under the heavens were covered, not just locally where they were, but everywhere. The water prevailed 15 cubits higher, and the mountains were covered. So just a few weeks earlier, Noah was on the ground building this massive ark, putting on the final final touches, and now he's floating high above the mountains. Just as man's wickedness had increased more and more, so does the judgment of rain. It prevails more and more. There's a correlating increase of sin and an increase of water where everything is going to perish. Noah is in an ocean of rain, a universal flood that extinguishes all life. Everything beneath the ark, with the exception of the animal of, of the water world, has now perished. Verse 21, All flesh that moved on the earth perished, birds and cattle and beasts and every swarming thing that swarms upon the earth and all mankind, of all that was on the dry land, all in whose nostrils was the breath of the Spirit of life, died. What an incredibly tragic picture that that would be. I chose not to go into detail of what this might look like But I think you can get the picture. There's nothing alive except that which is on the ark. God declared 120 years earlier that he was displeased with man's corruption. Man had thoroughly corrupted the world that God had made and filled it with violence. Man blessed, excuse me, God blessed man and instructed man to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth and subdue it. But what man did instead was man multiplied and filled the earth with violence. Not to subdue it, but to corrupt it. And so God in His sovereign rule, in His infinite wisdom, and in His divine prerogative, uncorrupted His world. He had every right to do it then. He would have every right to do it again, because it's His world. Verse 23, Thus he blotted out every living thing that was upon the face of the land, from man to animals, to creeping things, and to birds of the sky. And they were blotted out from the earth, and only Noah was left, together with those that were with him in the ark. Again, God took no pleasure in this. This was never his intent for his world, nor was it his intent for mankind. 
the eating of the tree from the the knowledge of good and evil, eating the fruit that came from that tree, brought exactly what God said it would bring, and that is death. So instead of being fruitful and multiplying, filling the earth and subduing it, man corrupted the earth and filled it with unspeakable evil, so much so that God said man's The thought of man's heart was only evil continually. And so the earlier motifs that we looked at of creation and sin and the penalty of sin resulting our death are restated here in the conclusion of this flood narrative. What God said happened. Death is the penalty of sin. Verse 24, the water prevailed upon the earth 150 days, assuring the hearers in Moses' day and all who would ever read this account that there was zero chance that anything could have survived such a torrential flood. The penalty of sin is death, but thanks be to God that we have forgiveness of our sin through Jesus Christ who died on the cross in our place bearing our shame, taking upon Himself our punishment, our burden, He who knew no sin became sin. Why? So that we could become the very righteousness of God. Would you pray with me, please?